So we're in the season the church celebrates referred to East, uh, they call Easter tide. We call it Easter tide. And what it is is sort of living in the, and ruminating about this notion that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that he can be contacted, that he is alive. And uh, what we find out in the story of the Gospels is after Jesus rose from the dead, there was about 40 days in post-resurrection that he would appear and disappear into the disciples' lives, talking with them, urging them, nudging them. And what it appears to, to, he appears to be doing is he appears to be preparing them for what we call uh, the day of Pentecost. And this day of Pentecost is the day when the Holy Spirit comes upon the whole church. Uh, when uh, they use the term falls upon all flesh, anyone who would be open to him. And after the resurrection of Jesus, one of the first things he tells them as he appears to them, we read in John 20. And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. It's that notion, not just of an emotion, but that everything would be appropriate. Because of the kingdom of God at work in a human life, things can be made right. Wrongs can be righted. And when that happens, the kingdom of God has come to bear. It's one of the reasons we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What we're really saying is let peace, peace come into the world, right? Appropriateness. And with that, it says that he breathed on them and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He was saying to them, just stay open to the Holy Spirit. Be expectant for the Holy Spirit. Prepare yourselves to receive what has come to be known at this point, the gift of God. The Holy Spirit, the gift of God. As early as John the Baptist speaking before Jesus enters his ministry, John was speaking about the coming of the Messiah. And he says of the Messiah in Matthew 3, I baptize you or I immerse you in water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, and he will baptize or immerse you with the Holy Spirit. And with some fire. How many could use some fire in your life? Fire consumes, it energizes, right? In John 15, when Jesus was just talking with them in the course of his ministry, he would bring up the Holy Spirit again and again. And in this particular case, he says, When the Counselor comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from my fathers, after Jesus had ascended, gone to be with his father, he would say, I'm going to send the Counselor to you. The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. He was saying to them, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to ratchet this deal up. And then right before he ascends after his 40-day post-resurrection hang time with the disciples, right before he ascends in Acts chapter 1, the scripture says he looks at them just moments before he takes off. And he says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, when you're immersed, when you're baptized. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. In other words, there'll be something that comes on you that will make you want to tell the story. So they wait in the upper room. And then Acts 2 happens, which we celebrate in just a few weeks, the first weekend in June. 
Pentecost Sunday. They were about to experience a new kind of modality of Jesus' presence in their lives. He, he had been with them physically, but now he would be with them by the Spirit. Jesus actually said, this is better. It's better for you that I go. Because right now, when you try to get with me, sometimes you can't find me. Remember, Jesus would take off and go pray, and they'd hunt for him, and they'd finally find him. Sometimes Jesus would be around a crowd, and he had to get in line, get in the queue, in order to get a hold of him. But Jesus was saying, via the Holy Spirit, everyone, I mean, it's like texting. I mean, you can get right in there, like a phone call. You can contact him without the limitations of physicality. It's better for you that I go, he says. So Jesus now can be contacted in a breath via the Holy Spirit. And this same spirit, it's the same spirit, and the early church knew this, it's the same spirit that had gotten inside Jesus in the grave when death had always prevailed in human life. Everybody knew the end was death. But somehow Jesus is dead, but the spirit goes in the heart of death and pulls Jesus out of death. Huh. Resurrection, it quickened them, quickened the Lord. And in Romans 8, Paul's reflecting on this, and he says to them, you, however, you're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. He's really using the kind of idea, like you would, I've heard and read about how, you know, royalty is sort of raised. No one says to a little prince, you know, if you don't act right, you'll never be a prince. You'll never be able to be king if you don't act right. You know what they say to them? You are a prince. Act right. You are royalty. Walk this way. Royalty doesn't act like this. Change your actions to match who you are. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you are not just sinners who need to surrender to your inclinations that are lower, that make you less than human. You have the spirit of Christ. He's in you. And if the Spirit of Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. And yet your spirit is alive because there's something right about you. Righteousness has come. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. That's such a wild thought. The very Spirit that went into the grave that pulled Jesus out is the same Spirit that goes into us to pull us out. Into new. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life. Resurrection life. To your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. They understood that when the spirit shows up, things happen. That things become new. That the kingdom is seen. In fact, one time Jesus was describing how he was helping someone who was under the oppression. Somehow the forces of darkness, the demonic, had kept a person trapped. And Jesus says, but if I drive out demons by the spirit of God... Then the kingdom of God has come to you. What he's connecting is that whenever the Holy Spirit is there, the kingdom is present. It's within your grasp. His influence, his power. And he could have just as much or just as easily said, whatever, if I do anything by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God in our lives is made real because of the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. The interaction of the Holy Spirit with the human heart always produces change. It produces fruit. 
In fact, Paul, when he's describing how somehow when we interact with him, whether it's in prayer or whether we're in community, we're open to one another or whether we come to Eucharist or whatever we do, whether we're singing in worship, whenever there's an interaction with the Holy Spirit, you can't help but be messed with. That the stuff will come out of you that you can't produce on your own. The stuff will come out of you. That, that he describes it in, in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit, the result, the end game of the, of the Holy Spirit in connection with the human life is love and joy, peace, appropriateness, patience. Which how many can use a little more of that? It's not something you have to come up with on your own because you're trying to be a goody, goody. It's something that happens when you just have encounters, lingering encounters with the Holy Spirit. This stuff pops out of you, right? Kindness, which is, which is solicitousness. In other words, it's that disposition to doing favor. It comes out of you. Goodness, which refers to motive, that you're, you're not doing it for some ulterior motive. The prevailing motive is for the good of others. Faithfulness, which means you just keep showing up. Even when it's hard, even when it's tough, you just show up. Gentleness, which is, means you're not grasping for power, but you're there open to present and submit. And self-control. I always find this odd that self-control isn't from the self that self-control is the result of this encounter with the presence of God. And when you have the encounter, somehow you can control yourself. You don't have to, you can say yes to what you should say yes to. You can say no to what you know you should say no to. It's not the result of more commitment. Right? And just making a decision for Jesus. It's more than that. It's you just having this encounter where this natural fruit is you can say no and yes. Our lives are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when they are, we become an expression of the risen Christ. This is what Paul meant when he said, I pray until Christ be formed in you, that be formed in you. In other words, it's somehow as a result of our encounter with the Holy Spirit, we start living the Jesus life and we start reacting in life or responding in life with this fruit so that we become Christ's body in the world. This isn't a commitment to ethics, even though there's ethics in it. This isn't a commitment to being good, although good comes out of it. It's, it's this commitment to the person who all of a sudden produces these kinds of fruits in our lives. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the person of God who brings the eternal into perception. He appears in the first few verses of Genesis. You remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth is formless, it's empty, it's dark. It doesn't look like much is going on. Chaotic. Hopeless. And yet, even though that's over the surface of the deep, who's there? The Holy Spirit. And what is he doing? He's hovering. And the Hebrew word here, literally, the Hebrew word here is the word brood. He's brooding. What do you think of when you think brood? Most of you think of a hen. The hen broods over the eggs. And that hen has a vision. It knows something is going to happen. And if you look deep into that little hen's eyes, you see baby chicks. 
And what he was saying here in the use of this text is somehow the Holy Spirit is hovering, brooding over what looks like darkness, what looks like chaos, that's formless, that's void. It's less than what it's supposed to be. It's void. Do you ever have void? Jobs less than they're supposed to be. Relationships less than they're supposed to be. Darkness. Things just aren't good. Things just aren't right. And, and sometimes we think he's not there, but he's right there. And, and God promises that he broods so that there's hope for new. The message is clear as we read the sacred text that the Holy Spirit is brooding over creation and that he's brooding over each one of our lives. The question we have to ask honestly is do we believe it? Or are we willing to try to believe it? Are, are, does it matter to us? Do we live in any anticipation of Are we willing to receive the Holy Spirit like Jesus breathed and said, would you receive the Holy Spirit? Would you go and wait? Are we, are we willing to wait to have encounters? Which indicates how then shall we live? How should we orient our lives to the idea that there's a, the Holy Spirit is actually brooding over our lives? I think what we're to do is live in anticipation of that. That, that as we engage in life, that, that we're to anticipate his presence as we act in our lives. Because we're being brooded over. I'm being brooded over. God's sitting on me. <laughs> I think it should affect everything. It should affect how you think about time. You know, the eternal one who's outside of time is brooding over us. What does that mean? The pagans in antiquity, they, they believed that, lot, that time was cyclical. They didn't believe it was linear. They believed it was cyclical. They just kept repeating. And when you look around, it kind of looks like that. I mean, you have days, day after day, the sunrise, sunsets, day rise, sunset, rise, sunsets. And then you had weeks into months, into seasons, into years, and it all looked like everything was just repeating. And they kind of thought we're in this repeating world of time. It, it's not going anywhere. We just appear in it, and then we disappear in it. But Judeo-Christian thought is the first kind of thinking that began to say, no, 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 no. It, we're not just in this cycle, ceaseless cycle. We're actually present in a world where there's someone outside of it, outside of time. And he's the one creating time. Time is linear. And it has a purpose. History has a purpose. It has, the, what the Greek word is, is a telos. An end game, a high watermark. There's a point to all of this. That's Christian thought. And it was, it was Augustine who, who basically talked about living in time uh, in terms of how we're living within contact with the eternal. And the image that he has was that each moment as it passes deconstructs into nothingness. And then as, as, as the future comes into the moment, it sort of comes together like a construction. It comes together in a creation. In other words, time is created. It isn't just cyclical and enduring. It's something created. And then as we move, God, the, what happens is the time passes, the past fades and dissipates, and the, and the future begins to construct. But the real place that matters is now. Right now. And so Augustine says, don't try to connect too much of your emotion and your heart to the past. Because if you do... Your life will dissipate because the past is disappearing. And that's why you can't live in guilt. That's why you can't live in remorse. If you do, your life will become nothing because time deconstructs. 
And that's why you're not supposed to live too far into the future because it hasn't come into reality yet. And you'll distend your soul if you reach too much in the future that you'll actually hate the now and miss life. This is a Christian thought. God wants us, this is a beautiful text here um, in Proverbs 29, because I think that this idea of living well in the now, but it also means that we're to orient ourselves to thinking about what's ahead, because God's creating it. And it should, it should cause us, because we know the Holy Spirit is brooding over us, and that he's present in us, and that if we look in his eyes, there's a future, we should seriously think about doing things like planning. There's a text in Psalm, Proverbs 29 that says, if there is no prophetic vision, if there's no sense of knowing there's something in God's eyes for your life, people cast off restraint. In other words, you won't gird up your life for direction. You'll just slob around. You'll just sort of stumble from one day to the other. But, but if, if you understand God has something for you, it ought to cause you to gird up and say, you know what? I want to engage in my life because I want to walk into that future that God is imagining for me. And God wants us to plan because he plans and we're to be like him, right? And, and we should learn to plan with a view of that brooding spirit over our lives. Our planning uh, should always have the caveat though that we should always be willing to pray about it. Always be willing to surrender our plans. But we are to plan. There's a text in James that says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James says, why? You, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, understand, he's not saying don't plan. He didn't just say, we should just say it's the Lord's will and just leave it alone. No, he's saying, when you plan, just always make sure you say, God, this is the plan. You cool with it? But we're to plan because if you don't let God into your plans that you're coming up with, you will be arrogant, he goes on to say. But it's silly to not plan. It's silly to not think about what you can do and begin to move that direction. So how do you know God's will in the matter of planning? How many of you would just wish he'd tell you? You know, like even, you know, an open vision or, or even a dream. How many would be okay with a dream where Jesus shows up and says, okay, this is what's going to go on this year. And then next year you should start thinking about, so save your money. How would you love that? I would absolutely love that. The problem is most of the time he doesn't do that. And in fact, uh, it's been my experience over 30 years of pastoring and hearing people's stories that for the most part, God does not speak directly to us. He doesn't. For the most part, uh, he just sort of, uh, and there, well, two caveats to that. One is, it's been my experience that God speaks to people, it seems like, when he's wanting them to do something fairly unusual that they never would have sort of stumbled into. It's just an odd thing. And God will speak to them and they'll step into that. Or uh, the other time I think God speaks to us clearly is when we're acting like idiots and we won't change. You know what I'm saying? And so God has to speak to us because we need to be spoken to. It's like when I was raising my kids, there were seasons where I would have to talk a lot to my children. That was not to their praise. 
I had to talk a lot to them because they were kept being morons. Right? And so sometimes, so, so do, if, if you have a friend that's always saying, the Lord's speaking to me, you ought to go, hmm. What I think, I think the way most of us find God's will is through using discernment, not searching for a voice. What is discernment? Discernment means you look for the fingerprints of God in your life or the winks of God in your life through the ordinary things and through talking with trusted others about your life. That somehow through that kind of maze, you begin to put pieces together. It's a lot more like the Goldilocks story, right? Where the three bears come home and they look around and they're going, hmm, somebody's been messing with our porridge. And then they look over here and they go, somebody's been messing with our chairs. And then they're like, oh, oh, look over here. Somebody's been messing with our beds, right? See, God loves to mess with us in little ways that you don't know. It's, it's like, I think, I think, I think he might be here. I mean, he, he messes with your table he, and your porridge. He messes with your bed. He messes with your chairs. It isn't until the end of the story that they met Goldilocks. For most of us, it won't be till the end of the story until we'll run and, smile, oh, you, you, and we'll realize he's been messing with us. Faith believes enough that he's messing, that we start trying to seek through what's going on. Where is his fingerprints? Which means, look at your personality. Look at your gifting. Look at the, the th- your experience and your interests. And a lot of times that's where God messes with you. And you begin to talk about that and, and with your friends and family and people you love and, and in your own reflection. And you can begin to steer your life and your plans, believing God's in it. If he's not, he will steer you differently. You need to discern it. Or you take your, here's another great way to do it, is you take your plans that you're considering and you sort of filter them through, you know, like a coffee filter, you know, you filter them through the cardinal virtues. These are, are, the, are the, the seven great virtues of history. The, the things like prudence. Prudence is the capacity to see the end from the beginning. To be prudent means, you know, to be imprudent means, you know, you're somebody that's going out every night and partying. I mean, it may be fun and they may have hilarious stories at the water cooler. But prudence says, if you keep doing this year after year after year for 20 years, it's just not going to be funny. Your life's going to fall apart and you're going to destroy everyone around you. It's imprudent. And so prudence says, before I make a decision, I'm going to say, what will this action produce a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now? And you decide about something because you filtered it through this virtue of prudence or the virtue of temperance. Temperance means you don't eat too much, you don't need too little. Temperance means you don't talk too much, you don't talk too little. It's easier to talk all the time or not talk at all. Right? But to talk just right, it messes with you. Temperance is a beautiful virtue that you can sort your thing through, sort your plan through. Am I going crazy here? Am I being okay with this? Another one is justice. Justice means fairness. Is this thing you're imagining, is it fair? Is it right? I mean, for your life right now and what the contingencies of your life are and what your responsibilities are, am I being fair to everyone if I make this kind of decision? This is how you begin to discern. One of the great challenges to us as a church, because most of us are older than 50, most of our relationship with God was contextualized in personal holiness. Where we're saying, okay, are we doing okay in our, our thought life? Are we doing okay, uh, you know, just with, with, with sins, personal sins? Are we staying holy in our personal... Most of us, 
that are brought up in evangelicalism post-50 didn't really think about justice in terms of are we taking care of people that are less privileged than us? We, we didn't think about it in terms of realizing that we are a privileged people and that most of the time we're not aware of those that are maybe close to us that are hurting. You know, war-torn countries and poverty in the world. And one of the things we love from the millennials is they're saying, look at, I mean, more important than whether or not someone is, is, is absolutely perfect in their uh, sexual thoughts or whatever they're doing, more important than or at least as important to that, than that or to that is the fact that there are people that are without hope. And the thrust to say, let's pay attention. We're going to be taking an offering at the end of the service for people that don't have any access to medicine. We're going down into medical missions. And, you know, for just pennies, we can pay for diabetes problems. Most of the people in developing countries have no Tylenol. Can you imagine a world without Tylenol? How can that world exist? And yet for so many, they don't even have that kind of simple pain management. And so we have an opportunity to step up. See, I think that that is just. That plan is just. But sometimes we have to think bigger and have God be willing to stretch our thinking to make sure our plans include more. Or the idea of courage. Courage means you're willing to run into battle. But it also means you don't do it alone if you're, because you'll be an idiot and you'll just die. It's having that sense of when to stand up and when to not stand up. Courage. And then there's the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, where you're saying, God, this action I'm thinking about, am I trusting you in it? Am I hopeful in it? Am I expect, expecting good from your hand? Does this, does this plan make sense in hope? Does this plan make sense if I put it through the filter of love, one of the other theological virtues, where, where I'm doing it not just for my own good, but for the good of all, the common good. So these kinds of things help us to discern what we're to do. And here's good news. You don't have to have complete clarity before you put yourself in motion. I used to think you had to hear from God clearly before you did anything. I think we should just do, do a good thing. Start putting yourself in motion. You don't have to hear from God every time you do something. It, it's like a car that if you get out in your car after the service and you start steering it back and forth while you're in park, it does no good. Right? What matters is when you put it on D and you start moving forward, all of a sudden the turns matter. Sometimes you just have to engage, get involved, volunteer, do something, take a class. You know, whatever it is, you just put yourself in motion. Don't let yourself be stuck. And you will navigate into this, into the dream that God has in his eyes about you. And one more thing about that. I think that when you're trying to discern, you need to decide to do what you do with your whole heart. Sometimes we think, well, I don't know if that's what I want to do, so I'm going to do it with half my heart or a quarter of my heart or 10% of my heart. We kind of just run at things just haphazardly, casually, because we're saving ourselves for something we really want to do. Instead of understanding, no, throw yourself into it. I remember getting out of high school, and I didn't know what I was going to do exactly, and, and, I, and I got this job as an orderly, and I'm in there. They paid horrible. I think I made $1.86 an hour, whatever it was, and this was back in the 70s. And uh, I, I'm working hard, and I'm, I'm doing stuff I didn't necessarily want to do. I'm bathing old guys and uh, cleaning up their messes when they mess themselves. And I'm doing all this, and I'm thinking, this, I hate this job. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? Do it with all your heart. And I just did it as though that was my life work. And I did it as unto God. And I remember how much joy I had out of a job I didn't want to do. 
I think that matters. I remember I felt I was called to be involved with ministry and somebody asked me to lead singing at their Bible study. And I thought, I'm not, that's not my calling. And I remember thinking, no, no, I'm going to do this. And I remember going there as if it was the most important thing I ever did in my life. I wasn't saving myself for later. I was giving myself and I would put that first and I prioritized that thing at the expense of other things I could have done. Because something in me said, do whatever you touch with all your heart. I think that's a good idea. And I think that when you do that, you start bumping into God's dream. You start taking a peek into his eyes over the brooding Holy Spirit and what he imagined. Now, here's one little sidebar trick to watch out for. When you do your best, the temptation is to trust it. But here's God messing with us. What he wants you to do is do your best, but not trust it. It's hard to do your best and not trust it. It's easier to not do your best and trust the Lord. You know, sort of slob around and say, well, you know, why work so hard? God's going to fix it anyway. God's here. God's here. I can do what I want to do. I can play some more video games. God will take care of it. Now, he wants you to work really, really hard as though it all depends on you. And then when you actually get engaged, you don't think it depends on me at all. It depends on him. They used to say about the, the Jews when they had their armies. I mean, they really, I mean, they, you know, an army takes a while to get in shape and they've got to work at it. They were doing sword plays. So, you know, they worked hard, got sore. They, I mean, this was dangerous stuff and they had the best horses and the best chariots. And yet God would say, work it, get really good at it, honor me through what you do. But when you go into battle, it isn't about you. So it says in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. It is so hard to trust God, to do your best and not trust it. Very hard. But God wants that from you. When somebody tells me, they're talking about a carpenter or something, they said, oh yeah, I got this great carpenter. Okay. And they say, you know, he's a Christian. My first thought is, I don't care. Can they actually do work? And do they work hard? And are they consistent? And are they fair? Because I've met a lot of Christians that are none of the above. <laughs> or going to a physician. Somebody says, well, you know, she's, she's a Christian. I was like, well, yeah, great. But would you send your child there to that person? See, because it's all well and good that somebody's a Christian. But what's really important is that they do really, really well at what they do. And then I'd just assume you be a pagan and do well at what you do and go to you. Then you be a Christian and slob it and lean on your faith to escape diligence, persistence, and excellence. Hmm? I'd rather run into somebody that's excellent and amazing and at the top of their game and find out they're a believer. Sweet! That's when it matters. Now, these are, are simple notions that will help you navigate your life and into the will of God and where you can tangibly experience the brooding Holy Spirit in your life and watch him construct a now that is delightful. There's one more thing. Not only is the brooding Holy Spirit over us when we're building our lives, when we're tasting our lives and loving our lives and good is coming, the brooding Holy Spirit is there when we face heartache and when we face trouble. 
I find it such a comfort in Genesis 1 and 2 where it talks about first about the Holy Spirit, where it said, we read it, the earth is formless and empty and dark is all you saw. Chaos, and yet he's there brooding. In the midst of chaos, he's still there. Even though it's the darkest time, things are void, he's still there. It's arguable that Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is actually more present in the lives of those where darkness and formlessness and void is present than anywhere else. At the judgment, Jesus says, and it's the only one of the only times Jesus talks about the judgment. He says that I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he says he talks to both groups and he says, you took care of me, the group that was, that was, that was going to be let in. He says, you took care of me. When I was sick, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they're going, well, well, when were we ever that? I mean, when did we ever see you there? And Jesus said, if you ever took care of a sick person, you were taking care of me, which is kind of counterintuitive. How could the healer of the world be in sickness? Doesn't explain, but he says he's there. Because the spirit broods where there's darkness and void and hurt and lack. He broods there. He's present there. It also says that the spirit is present and Jesus is present really extra in the midst of children. What is that? But somehow, somehow what we're called to do is understand that when things aren't exactly everything we want them to be, he's still there. A lot of people view when things aren't like they should be in the midst of sickness or heartache or whatever. They think that the person involved is under the judgment of God. I mean, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. The problem with that is a lot of good things happen to bad, to, to bad people and a lot of bad things happen to good people. If you just live long enough to observe right? So, so it's not true that, I mean, there's some cases where judgment does come to bear. There's stories in scripture and stories in history where people knew that this happened because of the judgment of God in their own lives, not in judgment of others, but just a sense in their own souls. But for the most part, that's not true. In fact, for the most part, the reason trouble comes in the world, Jesus tells us in John 16, watch it. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. What he's saying is the reason behind most trouble is that you live in a world that has trouble in it. Right? If you walked out, if we had this huge mud issue out in the middle of the parking lot that came in some rain and all of a sudden you walk out there and the mud is two or three inches deep and you walked out to your car and you looked at your feet and you said, oh my gosh, there's mud all over my shoes. It would be stupid to think God must be judging me by mud. The reason there's mud on your shoes is because there's mud in the world. The reason some people have heartache and trouble most of the time is because they live in a world that has heartache and trouble. And Jesus says, though, take heart. Why? Because in trouble, the brooding spirit is nearby. It says in Psalm 46 and 1, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. We think of trouble as here, God must not be anywhere. But in reality, when trouble is with you, God is ever present. Not causing it, but imagining new. And help. The Gunger family 
had a pretty tough yet wonderful week this week. This week, we, uh, our sixth grandbaby came into the world, but there were unexpected complications. Let me read you my son Michael's take on what happened. It's just from his blog. Quote, yesterday, which he wrote this on Wednesday. Yesterday was the craziest day of our lives. Lisa, his wife, Lisa had been having pregnancy issues and we knew this was going to be a high-risk birth. But over the last couple of weeks, we, and especially during the delivery, I occasionally caught pauses or furtive glances among the medical staff that made me wonder if something else might be going on that they were not wanting to say or, and worry us. Perhaps it was nothing. Perhaps it was new dad paranoia. As the labor grew in intensity yesterday morning, tensions continued to mount in the room. Extra staff was called in. Eyes were glued to the monitors. But all of the tension subsided for us the moment Lucette Anna Gunger entered the world. It was beautiful. Lisa was amazing. Matthew Perryman Jones' Land of the Living was playing on my fairly obsessed over iTunes playlist. There's nothing like welcoming a new life into the world. The magic, the beauty, the absurdity of it. Lisa held our little purple crying Lucy to her chest as tears streamed down all of our faces. But the bliss soon gave way to panic as we began to realize something was wrong. The doctors took Lucy from Lisa and to the table in the corner to check her more thoroughly. I followed them, and as I stared at her crying face, something about it seemed a little unusual. That same pit of worry began to grow in my stomach again, only this time even more intensely. In a few minutes, the nurse confirmed to Lisa and I what I had suspected at the table, and it knocked the air out of me. Lucette has Down syndrome. The nurse continued to speak, but I couldn't fully understand the noises coming from her mouth. I was like a spirit, no longer present with my body, floating there in the hospital room, not sure where to go or what to do. If I could have spoken, I, I might have said something like, what do you mean Down syndrome? That's... Not us. That's not our lives. Parenting a person with special needs. Our lives are too complicated now as they are. This just can't be. But words don't come easily to disembodied spirits. So I just stared blankly out of the void at the nurse making the meaningless sounds. Even though this is only yesterday that this happened, I, I don't really remember the next hour or two very clearly. It felt like some bizarre nightmare where I wandered around aimlessly in the dark and lonely fog. I looked at Lisa, who had tears in her eyes, but did not seem to know how to process the information any better than I did. We sat in the room for a while and held the baby. People said things. The ache and fear continued to grow in my gut. I was devastated. I couldn't see anything but how hard this was going to be. The limitations, the costs, the dangers. 
And then the guilt for feeling the things I was feeling. Shouldn't I just be excited for this little girl after all? Dread, sadness, and guilt are not the sort of emotions one wants to feel upon the birth of his beautiful new daughter. The world was spinning. I needed some air, fresh air. I took a a walk around the block. I felt such grief, anger, confusion, and I would occasionally be paralyzed as I bent over in heaving cries. I called my sister. She told me that this baby was precious and loved and that this is going to be a beautiful experience. She told me that we were going to be the perfect parents for Lucy and that she was fearfully and wonderfully made. I made more calls. Everyone was so supportive and positive and compassionate. Slowly, the lonely, shadowy darkness that I was wandering through began to lighten. Our amazing family and friends began to surround us and mend flesh back to spirit. The love of those around us was the realization that we were not, in fact, solitary ghosts. We were not alone in this. I cannot tell you how wonderful people were to us yesterday family that was not already here dropped everything to start making their way here. Friends drove and sent loving texts and encouragement. Even the doctors and nurses were especially present and kind to us. Love really is a powerful force. Our heads began to clear. We were surrounded by all of these amazing people and their overwhelming support. But Lisa and I hadn't yet had a moment alone. So I asked everybody, to leave the room for a bit. When the room was emptied, we just held each other and wept, deep, guttural, crying. When we had no more tears left to cry, I felt inspired to do something that's a kind of odd for me to do these days. Honestly, my personal relationship with the Bible has not been great over the past few years. I find it to be such a difficult and misused book that I often just avoid it but somehow in the middle of this very real pain. I was struck by that phrase my sister had used, fearfully and wonderfully made. So I took out my phone, I googled Psalm 139, I placed my hand on Lisa's belly, and I read, you created her inmost being. That phrase unearthed a new reservoir of tears for both Lisa and I. It took a long time before I could gain composure to continue reading. But eventually the words washed over us like a waterfall. You knit her together in her mother's womb. We praise you because she is fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Her frame was not hidden from you when she was made in the secret place. When she was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw her unformed body. All the days ordained for her were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts of her, O God. How vast is the sum of them were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. I began to say that this precious life that had been given to us was indeed a gift. Even though it might not have come in the expected packaging with the exact kind of bow and wrapping paper that we're accustomed to, it was no less of a gift. Life is a gift. 
period. Life is more than salary levels or grade point averages. Life is more than rankings on a chart. Life is about things like love, wonder, and joy. And let me tell you, this girl is going to be loved. And while I don't know that much about Down syndrome, DS yet, the people with DS that I have seen certainly seem to know how to experience some real joy and wonder. Life is a gift. Lucy is a gift. We know we have a challenging road ahead of us. We have been informed, for instance, that Lucy is going to need a couple of major heart surgeries in the next six months. This is not going to be easy. But we also believe it's going to be an amazing adventure. As I watch Lisa and Amelie, our other daughter, hold and kiss this precious little girl of ours, I am already more in love with this family of mine. Together we're going to learn and experience love and joy in new ways we already We already connected with family and friends in a deeper way. And Lucette is gorgeous. Her name means light. And we know that she is going to continue to bring so much light into the world that needs it. So welcome to the world, Lucy. We are so grateful for the gift that you are. And you are and will always be loved. End quote. So... Little Lucette went into surgery on Thursday. When they told us about the doctor, the doctor, they said he has such a great personality and has a great caring attitude. My wife says, I don't care. Is he any good? (laughs) He can be crabby as the day is long. Is he any good? The doctor told us he would send his children to this doctor. He met the doctor. That's all he does is heart surgery, open heart surgery and that sort of thing on children, infants. He walks into the room. He looks at Michael and Lisa and he says, I just want you to know I'm a fan of yours. I have all of your music. My whole family is praying for you. We're, we're thankful to be a part of your story. And he gathered the team, the nurses, and the doctors and the people that were there and said, would you let us pray for you? And so they're there in that room praying together. It was like God was just winking at them, saying, I got this covered. And what's confusing about it is we had prayed for no complications. We had, we, we had prayed for no unusual challenges. I mean, who doesn't do that when new life comes into the world? But not every prayer gets answered. But that doesn't mean God isn't there. We don't understand all of that. I mean, some people just flippantly say, well, God just plans everything. That's a very odd, in my view, oversimplistic view. I think this world has craziness in it and God's in its midst. And what we do is we keep pressing into the eternal because it matters. And whatever happens, we trust God is there to bring something else out of it. Not that he's causation of everything. He doesn't. He doesn't cause rape. doesn't cause whatever. We just trust that even in the midst of whatever we face as a human race, God is there with us. And can turn even things that we think might not be good into something amazingly good because he's that good. Jesus said, and I think this is why Jesus said it in Matthew 7, Keep on asking! 
and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking reverently and the door will be open to you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives and who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, the door will be open. What's he saying? Just stay with it. God is over your life. The Holy Spirit is brooding over your life. It matters to keep calling out to him. So here's what I'm saying to you this morning. Your takeaway. One in the warp and woof of everyday life. The spirit is brooding over you. Two, because he's over your life and the life that you have is a gift, make plans with a discerning heart. And three, when your life hits the fan, that is no evidence that God is not there. He broods over you wherever you are. So let's learn to acknowledge that in prayer. Let's learn to acknowledge that in moments like this when we come to the table. And we believe that somehow the Holy Spirit is brooding over this. That somehow he's going to bring the kingdom to bear so that what is just common bread becomes the body and what seems to be just common cup becomes his blood. And we have an encounter with the eternal as we touch and taste it. Let me invite you to stand with us. And let's come to him. Musicians, if you'd come, those of you helping with communion, if you would come to help us distribute it.